Augustine was uh, an early church father who lived about 300 years after the Apostle Paul in 4th century. And he was the pastor in a place called Hippo, of all places. It's modern-day Algeria today. Augustine had a Christian mother, but when he got a little bit older in his life, he turned his back on her faith in Christ and sought to live whatever he wanted to do. He decided to find truth elsewhere. He tried to live however he wanted to do. And he fathered a child out of marriage. It was a great disappointment to his mother. However, when he was living in Milan, he heard the preacher Bishop Ambrose, who was a towering figure in that time in Christianity in that part of the world. And after listening to his message, he found that he could not shake off the words that he heard that morning when he went to their church. He says, after that, and I quote, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle I had within myself. And suddenly, as I was twisting and turning in my chains of sin, I heard a voice from the nearby house next to me as if a boy or a girl were chanting or screaming, pick up and read, pick up and read. He said, so I did. I took up the Apostle Paul's book, which was Romans. I opened it in silence and read the first passage which my eyes fell upon. And it read this, it's Romans 13, 13 and 14. Not in riots or in drunken parties, nor in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lust. He writes, I needed wish or want any to go any further. At once, with the last words of that sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all my anxiety had flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. That day, I was born again. Romans is what God used to bring the great church father and great pastor and theologian Augustine to faith. A thousand years later, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, who had been taught all of his life as a Catholic, that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. And so he had grown quietly and secretly because he was a monk. He grew to hate God. He said, I hated God first because God required of me what I could not do. And then he left me to fail without any help. Luther finally changed. In fact, he would say, I'm saying a minute, a breakthrough. When he finally grasped our text, Romans 1.17, it was the phrase, the righteousness of God revealed that he could not get past. A righteousness by faith, it said. Luther said upon reading it over and over and over, he said, I labored diligently and anxiously to understand how Paul's phrase worked. The expression, the righteousness of God, it blocked my way because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals with righteous, righteously in punishing the unrighteous. See, he was an impeccable monk, he said. And I stood before God as a sinner, even though I had done almost everything right. He said, I did not love the righteous and angry God. Rather, I hated him until the day I grasped 
that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors to paradise, he says. I had a breakthrough. I read those two stories again this week in preparation for today, and I asked the question I want to ask you. What is it about Romans that has proved to be so life-changing and history-shaping in so many people's lives? And I actually hope for you today as well. I think the answer to that question is that Romans is all about the gospel. That's our theme this year, gospelized. And I thought we might want to know what the gospel is if we're going to be gospelizers. In fact, it's so important in the book of Romans, it's mentioned 11 times. It actually frames out and it's like bookends to this great theological treatise. It starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, and at the very end, 1625, and a bunch of places in between, because Paul is writing about the good news, the gospel. He uses that word four times alone in chapter 1, where we are today. And it's not really surprising when you read Romans, because the apostle Paul himself was transformed by it on the Damascus Road. He had a breakthrough like very few other people had a breakthrough when he met Jesus himself in person on the Damascus Road. And so he writes this book at about AD 57, and he wants the people in Rome, and he wants his readers, including us, to know two things. He wants us to understand exactly what the gospel is, And he wants us to have an experience, a personal experience of faith with that very gospel. He wants you and I to know today that the gospel is not just a diving board off which we enter into Christianity. It's actually the swimming pool in which we swim our entire lives. From the beginning to the end, the gospel is the entire Christian life. I would tell you this morning that Augustine and the Apostle Paul were not the only ones who needed a gospel breakthrough. We all do. We all do. Paul did. The Romans did. Augustine did. Martin Luther did. And every single person here under the sound of my voice this morning, we all need a gospel breakthrough. In order for that to happen, I'd like to unpack just two things. What the gospel is and its power to save us. So let's look at them one at a time together. What is the gospel? It's a number of things, three of them I'd like to point out to you. The first being this, the gospel is good news. We use the gospel at Faith Baptist Church. We talk about that term all the time. It's one of those words that Christians often use but rarely define, and I want to define it for you today. It is shorthand, basically, for the Christian message. It's really what we're all about. When Jesus and Paul used the term differently than we do, at least back then, they used it religiously, but by and large, most people who heard the word gospel in the first century did not use it that way because its original meaning was an imperial one or a military one because the word in Greek is euangelion, good news, good message, or even at times good messenger. In fact, we get the word angel from it because angels are really just messengers of God. 
So today we have news, we have good news, and it gets distributed in all kinds of different ways. We have good news, it's printed, you can read it in a magazine or a newspaper, you can watch it on TV, we have the radio, we have audio, we have all kinds of forms on television, we get it that way. But they didn't have any of that in the first century. So in order to get news, they had heralds. For example, if an emperor had won a great military battle and his victory had secured peace and prosperity for his people and it established his authority, he would send out heralds, angeloi, messengers to go throughout the empire to literally every town and they would proclaim that the king had been victorious and they had no longer any need to fear their enemies at all. See, the gospel at the heart of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ is king and that he has come to give us the good news, that he is Lord and Savior. And the good news is that he has won a great battle, that he has won a victory through his death and resurrection. And he has won that victory and given us salvation. And we no longer have to fear death or anything else for that matter. But see, the gospel is good news. And that's different than every other religion in the world. It's different than every other worldview because the gospel is different in this way. It's good news, not good advice. Good news is an announcement that what God has already done for you. But good advice is someone telling you what you might do for God. They are completely the opposite. See, religion would say this. If you want to know God, if you want to connect with God, then you do this and you do this and you keep the sacraments or you do this or you make a trip and, a, you, know, and you go to this place and you bow down and worship or you give this kind of money. See, it's good advice. Only Christianity is good news. It's good news. In order to experience a gospel breakthrough, the first thing you have to realize is this, is that the gospel is utterly different. It's not good advice. It is good news. To say that being a Christian, like people I've talked to even in recent weeks, that being a Christian is keeping the golden rule or loving your neighbor or doing good to other people. See, I, I think those are all great things, and our culture would definitely be better if more people did them. But it's not good news. See, there's no breakthrough in that approach. It, see, the breakthrough comes when you realize that the gospel is all about what God has already done for you, not what you will do for God. So the first thing you want to know in a gospel breakthrough and that anyone who's ever been saved had to realize is that God is not giving good advice. He's not just trying to shape you so that you can have a better life. He's giving you good news so that you can actually know what life is. So what is the gospel? It's good news. Not good advice. It's good news. But secondly, let me flip it over a little bit. This is a little bit more difficult. The gospel is offensive. Could you look at verse 16? It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, you'll notice in our text there are three little connecting words. The, little, the word for it's at the beginning, in the middle, at the end. And the reason is, is because these verses that we've read today are connected to the two previous verses. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because he says, I've come to Rome, I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm ready to preach it to you because it's offensive. But it won't stop Paul from preaching it. See, 
Anytime that you and I, or you hear someone say, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of her. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not ashamed of whatever it is. When you have to say that, it usually means that there are a lot of people who actually are ashamed of it. So you stand out and say differently, hey, I'm not, you might be ashamed of that. A lot of people might be ashamed of that, but I'm not ashamed of that. I have talked to witness, witness to people for numerous times, and even people that eventually in talking to them came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I can tell you this, many times they have started off being offended by the gospel. Offended by it. I have sat four lunches, probably in a row, with a guy that I talked to in a very intellectual, but he was an atheist. And I told him that he needed the gospel, he needed Jesus, and that he couldn't work his way, he couldn't be good enough, he couldn't think his way into heaven. He was offended. He was offended. And every time I'd have to call him back to get him back to come for another time. But I can tell you, I've talked to two atheists who've come to know Jesus Christ. Both of them have been offended when I first started talking. You know why? Because the gospel is cross-centered. In Roman culture, the worst thing, the worst thing that anyone could ever have happened to them was that they would be crucified. Crucifixion was a slave death. If you were a citizen of Rome, it was so awful and atrocious and hideous that they didn't allow anyone, no matter how bad your crime was, to be crucified. Slaves could be crucified. It was not only a slave death, but it was a shameful death. It was done on a major highway. Everyone would see you. You were on the cross without clothes on. You couldn't control your bodily functions, and they left you there, and usually the animals would end up, most of the times, uh, devouring people that were on the cross. You weren't buried. You didn't have a grave. It was the worst torturous, physically torturous, socially shameful death possible. Now imagine... The Apostle Paul is going around, like he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, that he preaches nothing else but Jesus Christ crucified. Imagine the message in a, in a context like first century Rome where it is the most despised thing of all. He is saying the most important person who has ever lived, the king of the universe, is one who has been crucified. No wonder he says to those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. It's the Greek word moron. <laughs> in other words, when you hear the gospel, that forgiveness and being right with God is through someone who was crucified shamefully in weakness. Where is the power in that, they would say? You say Jesus said, and this is why, to John the baptizer, he said, let me send back a messenger to you because he was wondering, sitting in a prison cell, whether Jesus was really the Messiah. He began to have questions because he thought Jesus would bring in this kind of salvation, a powerful salvation. But when he wasn't and John was in prison, he needed to ask, is it you or is there another? And Jesus says, look at all the things I'm doing. And then he ends with this phrase in Matthew eleven six: and blessed is he who is not offended by me. And it's the word scandalized. You see, when someone preaches the cross to you, it scandalizes you. Why? Because it's weakness. Jesus, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, it says he died in weakness. There is actually an inscription or a carving on the side of a rock in Israel, or I should say in Rome, and it has a picture of a donkey on the cross. And the, and the words underneath it, Alexander worships his God. That's what they thought 
of Christianity. That it was moronic to think that someone could be death, had death on a cross and be a god. But see, that's what everybody thinks because not only did Jesus die in weakness, but you have to admit that you have a weakness if you accept the gospel. That's why it's offensive. Romans 5 and verse 6 says, when we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. So you have to admit, if you accept the gospel, you have to admit that you're not good enough. You have to admit, and it's the scandal, and I've had a woman tell me, I don't need anyone to save me, especially if they have to do that to do it. Because you know what? When you look at Jesus on the cross, and we'll see that again portrayed for us at Easter, you're looking there, and you have to be able to say, that's what it took to save me? I've had people tell me I could not possibly be that bad. I've talked with someone who considered herself, really prided herself in being the good daughter in their family. <laughs> well, all the other children were rebellious and disobedient, this one, but she had a hard time believing that the gospel was for her. Yes, my sister or my brother needed it, but you're not, you're kidding. You think that I need that? See, there's no way, I've been told, that it could be that easy to trust Jesus. I have to be able to, I have to have to do something. I'm already religious. Doesn't that count for anything? Those are the things I hear from people. See, that's what makes the gospel offensive. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. Because he preached this, Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he rises again from the grave. And he says this, if you believe in that, then you're in. And if you don't, you're out. It's that simple. That's the clarity of the gospel. But people can't handle it. But the gospel is absolutely unique. It makes no sense to almost everyone that you would share it with. Because it contradicts every other religious structure on the globe. It really goes against the heart of every worldview, because it is not what you do, it is what has been done for you. So when you have a gospel breakthrough, you will find that as you hear the gospel, it will upset you. It'll make you mad. You'll struggle with it. You'll have to wrestle with it. As Augustine said, it's a burning struggle, like twisting and turning in my chains, he said. Is that you? Do you have a burning struggle? See, perhaps, if so, the gospel is dealing with you. It's bothering you. It's disturbing you. You can't help but think about it. You want to try to dismiss it from your mind. You want to act as if you've never heard it, but you cannot because you're engaged with it. Perhaps the Lord God is using that to bring you to salvation. See, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. The gospel, you know what it is? It's also offensive but the gospel is also, as the text says, powerful. Can you look at it with me? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Did you notice he did not say that the gospel brings power? He did not say the gospel has power. He said the gospel is power. The gospel is not merely a concept. It is not merely a philosophy. It is not just merely a set of intellectual propositions about truth, although it is those things. It is more than that. It is power innately. Paul loves to put words and power together when he talks about the gospel. 
They're not just words. It's not just a power. It is powerful words that come together in Jesus Christ. Because most of all, the gospel is a person. And that person has died and rose again on the cross and rose again from the grave so that we could have a true connection with him by faith. Unfortunately, that's not the only one who's out there telling a gospel about how you can connect to Jesus. I read an article, I don't know if you've ever heard of Carissa Schumacher, but for $1,111 an hour, Carissa Schumacher can help you connect with Jesus. The fee purchases entries into Carissa's very posh Los Angeles studio. When you come in there for her service, it does include a choir of sorts. There are some enthusiastic inquirers, including some of the megastars you might know. Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston goes there regularly. Uma Thurman and other Hollywood celebrities. When the singing ends, a hushed silence falls across the room. As the article said, a keen sense of anticipation is in the air. For Carissa walks in dramatically. She sits in the only seat in the front, and she says nothing, and sits there quietly and stares out at the audience to the point where one person said it was long enough just to make you feel uncomfortable. And long last, she speaks. And when she speaks, she tells the audience that this is Jesus actually speaking to them. She calls him Yeshua, and then she speaks and says everything that he says, but uses a British accent. I'm not making all this up. She tells people what Jesus is saying to her, through her, to them. Now, afterwards in the article, some of her followers were interviewed. And one of them said this, that Yeshua channeling stuff is way out there. And some people, it's actually insane to them. But she said, the crazy thing is that people keep coming back. Because when she communicates, she goes, it just resonates with me. You see, in our day, people are not looking for a power that redeems them. They're not looking for a power that rescues them. They're looking for a power that resonates with them. They're not looking for a change. They're not looking to have their life turned upside down. You know, the only power that they're looking for is for someone to tell them what they'd really like to hear. See, the American gospel is far less about personal salvation than it is about personal fulfillment. And what people want today is not forgiveness of sins, but they just want to really find themselves. They aren't interested in God help. They're really just looking for self-help. And truthfully, to be flat out honest, after I read the article, I came to this conclusion that people would rather have a, mis- a message from Carissa than they would Christ almost any day. <laughs> they're not looking for a power to change. They're looking for a power that channels what they want to hear. See, people want a message, but not that kind of power. In Rome, see, there's only really one kind of power. It was the power of force. The power of violence. And in Roman days, they would say, as we would say today, might makes right. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's a different kind of king. 
He's the king that stands up and says, it's not the power of force that changes people. It's the power of faith that changes people. It's not might makes right. It's might makes righteous. But very few people, as you could imagine, even today, were interested in such a message. See, they had an outside-in gospel where the outside was the power first, and then it affected you on the inside. And Jesus reversed all of that, and he came along with a power in the gospel that was an inside-out gospel, that he had to change you on the inside. He had to change your desires and what you wanted and what you thought was valuable. It, It turned your whole life and your priorities and your values completely upside down, and then you would be changed on the outside. It's completely revolutionary. That's why Paul says it's a power unto salvation because you need to be changed and I need to be changed. That's what a gospel breakthrough is, as Luther said it. See, it takes place when you recognize that you're such a sinner that you, in fact, actually do need to be rescued, that you actually do need to be saved because Jesus is the only one who can do it. I've given this illustration before, but I think it's a good one. I was a camp director for a number of years when I first got married as a youth pastor. And we had a lake and a big pond, like a, a, you could jump off this dock. It was a floating dock. And we'd have kids, and we had a bunch of kids every week. And so I'd have to go out there, and I had to learn to be the lifeguard. And so I had to go to the YMCA. I had to get my certificate and pass the lifeguarding test. And one of the things they told you about people that thought they were drowning in water over their head is that you can't go and up front and, and go right in f- to them. They see you and you see them. And as soon as you get close, you can't do that because as soon as they do, they're desperate. They're going to grab you and hold on to you and push you under to keep them up. So we had to learn the approach. I had to learn to tell them to calm down, which was worthless. And you swim around the backside of them where they can't see you. And you have to come up behind them and you have to grab them. From the back, and there were certain holes that you had to put on them. Because although they were drowning and desperate, right, they were going to fight you on it. See, that's what happens to us, isn't it? See, we know that we're sinners. We know that we're not righteous. We know that we need a breakthrough. We actually do. But see, we fight it. We fight it in our lives. We fight the fact that only Jesus is the one who can save us. He has to give us life. He's the only one that can do it. See, that's the power of the gospel. Only Jesus can save. But did you notice in the text that at the same time in this power and what it does, that is at once it has boundlessness and boundaries at the same time. Both of them, take a look at it. It says in the text, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Did you see it? Paul says the gospel is for everyone. That's why we prize the international flavor, if I can say it that way, of Faith Baptist Church. That's why we seek people from all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all racial backgrounds, no matter what your social status is, no matter what your upbringing is, no matter what your education, no matter how good or awful your past may be, the gospel is for everyone, Paul says. See, it's inclusive. 
It's inclusive for everyone. Anyone, anywhere, anytime, the gospel can save your life. That's what makes it good news. I don't have to figure out who I'm going to tell it to, who I'm going to say it to, because everybody needs it. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs the gospel. At the same time, it's not only inclusive, everyone can have it. It's exclusive. Because he says that, everyone who believes. You have to believe to have it. In fact, let me tell you a technicality. In the Greek, it says everyone who believes. And everyone can most of the time be a plural word. But in this instance, it is singular. Meaning every single individual must believe the gospel and over and over throughout this epistle, Romans 3.22, to all who believe, no distinction. In other words, it doesn't matter what your color, it doesn't matter what your background, everyone needs the gospel, but you have to believe. Romans 4.24, it is counted as righteousness to those who believe in him. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. See, you can be religious, you can come to church, you can assent to the facts that some of the things in the Bible are true. You might think that Jesus' death is historical, but you're not saved. You may not understand that you need to believe the gospel. That's what changed Martin Luther. That's what changed him. Can I say it one more time? He says, I stood before God as a sinner... Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but hated him until, until I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy justifies by faith. It was when Martin Luther believed that he really could never be good enough, that he wasn't going to measure up. And no matter how much of an impeccable monk he was, it was never going to be enough. And he realized that he needed, by faith, to trust Jesus so that he could have his righteousness. One of the differences between Protestantism, which is us, and Catholics, is the difference on what the view of righteousness is. Ours is imputed righteousness. It is a gift of God. It is nothing that you can earn or merit on your own by any works that you do. And in Catholic Catholicism, it is an infused righteousness. And as you do things, sacraments, other things that they want you to do, then you are given more and more righteousness. But it's the difference between self-righteousness and Jesus' righteousness. Luther called it alien righteousness, not because it's from another planet, but alien means outside of you. You can't earn it. You can't do anything. You can't work at it. You can't make enough. You can't do all these things enough to be able to say, God, now you're going to be happy. Look what I've done. It's always about what Jesus Christ has done. He says, I broke through, Luther says, and I formally hated that expression, the righteousness of God. I hated it because it pointed out my flaws, my limitations, my weaknesses, my inability to please God. He said, but when I broke through, I began to regard it as my most dearest and most comforting word. It changed his life. Luther had a gospel breakthrough when he recognized that the righteousness in which Paul speaks in our text in verse 17 it's not righteousness of God, it's righteousness from 
God. It is a free gift. You have to believe. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus that it is not your righteousness that will get you to heaven. It is his. It is not your righteousness that gives you merit and favor with God. It is his. It's not what you do. It's what has already been done for you. That is how you have the mercy and grace that only God can give. See, it is a received righteousness, not an achieved righteousness. I have talked to, in recent days, numerous people, and two of them have come to know Christ. And in talking to them, one of the most difficult things to talk to people about to get saved is that they don't have to do anything. In fact, more than that is they can't do anything. It is a hurdle. All their life they've been performers. People who try to measure up, people who do this and prove that this is what they're worth and this is their identity and this is who they are. It's hard to receive righteousness. That you can't do anything. That it is a gift. But it's always been that way. Do you see how verse 17 ends in our text? He says, for it's the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or as another version says, from faith first to last. And I think if you look at the Greek correctly, I think that's a pretty decent translation. In other words, it's always been by faith first to last. And it's not just a new covenant thing. It's an old covenant thing. It's a Bible thing. Habakkuk 2.4, and the just shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament text. It's always been that way. It's not about what you do. It's not keeping the law. It's not being as good as you can. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. It's putting your faith in him. Would you do that this morning? Would you trust him? Maybe you're here and you're religious, and, and I can tell you people who walk down the aisle. I remember I said this at the funeral. Ed Koenig who for 20 years heard the gospel message, knew Jesus, nicest guy in the world, moral, reputable. And he came down the aisle that day and said, Pastor Walker, I get it. I said, what do you get, Ed? I thought he got a new car or something. But he got a new life. He says, I get it. I've been Catholic my whole life. And he says, I don't have to perform. I, don't, I can't do anything. I get it. I said, Ed, what do you, how do you get saved then? He goes, it's Jesus, isn't it? I go, it is? I said, you can put your faith and trust in him. He goes, I go, would you like to do that? He goes, Pastor Walker, that's why I came down the aisle today. And right there in the front pew, Ed trusted Christ as his Savior. And he got baptized with his daughters. What a man, what a changed man. Changed man from the inside out. See, that's the power of the gospel. Have you experienced it? That you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, that he is the only Savior, that his death and resurrection was for your sins, that's what it costs. See, maybe that offends you, but maybe this morning that offense will turn to humility, that you might come to the realization that you shouldn't be offended, but humbled because that's how much he loved you. Because when you were still weak, ungodly, and a sinner, the Bible says, Christ died for you. Would you trust him today? Let's pray. Oh, in just a little bit, we're going to sing a song. It was finished upon that cross, and one of the lines goes like this. Boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' 
righteousness. Mm. Oh, that that was everyone here today. Not your own righteousness, not your religiosity, not your moral behavioralism, but Jesus. Clothed in his righteousness. That's why he came. If you could get to heaven and live the life he wanted you to live here on your own, he would have stayed there and just said, be as good as you can. But that's why he came, and that's why he died. And that's why he rose again, because you can't. Perhaps this morning you're here, and you've heard that gospel message this morning. But maybe, like Luther, you've heard it before, but today is the day that you actually understand it. That the righteousness of God can be given to me and to my account so that when I stand before him, I'm righteous, justified by faith as a gift. Pastor Walker, I want that gift. I want that gift. I know I'm a sinner, and perhaps this morning for the first time, you've seen it in a way you've never had before. I understand now why he died. I understand why he rose again. I understand why he would love me that much. And I want to put my faith and trust in him alone for my salvation. With every head bowed, every eye closed, would you, anyone on the main floor of the balcony say, Pastor Walker, I've heard the gospel today, and I want to believe it. I want to put my life in Jesus' hands and trust him for everything in my life. Would you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you while we wait just a few moments. Just keep it up so I can see you. Anyone at all, thank you. Anyone else? Keep your hand up, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I see that yet. Anyone else? Yes, anyone else? In just a moment, we're going to pray. Your head's bowed and eyes closed. We're going to have an invitation. If you would come forward, you raise your hand. I would encourage you, if you raise your hand, some have been here multiple times, you've raised your hand multiple times. Would you humble yourself today? Would you come and let someone take the word of God and show you today how Jesus can clothe you in his righteousness that you might have life eternal? Father, help us. I pray for those who raise their hand today, indicating they know the gospel, they've heard it, they have sensed the good news for them. They're struggling, perhaps some agonizing. I pray, Father, that today that there would be a gospel breakthrough for them, that the light would shine in the darkness, that life would invade death and conquer it by faith. And we'll thank you for that great power as you use it in the lives of people here today to change them for eternity. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.